entitled God's Dream. This is part three. And I've entitled it this morning, Uncommon Intimacy. Grab your Bibles. I want to make a declaration of faith over what we're going to hear this morning, over these next few moments together, where we look into the uncommon intimacy of the Father. God's dream, uncommon intimacy. Say it with me. This is my Bible. God's written living word. It's how God thinks. It reveals to me who God says I am and tells me what God says I can have. Because it's how he thinks, I choose to believe and act on what I'll read. And therefore I am transformed. Amen. Our text is found in Luke's Gospel. Would you join me there? Chapter 19. Oh my goodness, there's no words on the screen. You actually needed to bring your Bibles. We might have a revival in this church. I had to bring my Bible. (laughs) What if we turned off the projection for the sermon and didn't have any scripture verses up and you had to look in your Bibles? Oh no, what would we do? By the way, the notes for today's service is in the church app. Open your church app, click on the button that says sermon notes and you're there. You'll be able to take notes. Luke's Gospel, this series um, is really dealing with the fulfillment the idea that fulfillment in life is not wrapped up in pursuing our personal dreams, but in reflecting and fulfilling God's dream. And so once more, we're taken to a passage of scripture here where the dream of God is expressed for the most unlikely of characters. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. He tried to get a good look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead, and he climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. By the way, the Aramaic translation says, for today is appropriate that I be in your house. Now they spoke Aramaic back then. That's the language that Jesus spoke. So it's important for us to go back and to take a look at things often, both culturally and linguistically. Verse 6, Zacchaeus quickly climbed down, and he took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people, but the people, but the people... Some of your relatives were there. (laughs) What we're about to read, okay, some of your friends, 
were there. But the people were displeased, saying, he has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. They grumbled. Now the Aramaic translation of that says, the fellow began entering and bonding to sinners. Jesus began entering and bonding with sinners. Verse 8. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half of my wealth to the poor, Lord, and if I have cheated people in their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today, Aramic. Today, life is given to this house, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. Verse 10, watch. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. That's an unfortunate translation, inaccurate. It actually says, and you'll find this in King James, New King James, uh, some of the other more literal word-for-words. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Here's the Aramaic. I think you're going to like it. For the Son of Man came seeking and giving life, particularly to anything that had disappeared. Whoa. Wow. Oh. (laughs) Go back to the garden. What had disappeared? Jesus didn't come to seek and to save just those who were lost, you, me, and those at the time. He came to rectify and set straight and reconcile all that was lost. All that disappeared because of the fall that happened in the garden. I'd like to take just a moment here and show you something about the dualistic teaching of separation. It's important. Uh, I learned, and I'm going to imagine that you did too, when I was in Sunday school, that there's this great chasm, this gulf, if you will, between you and God. And down here are the fires of hell. And unfortunately, (laughs) you are separated from God. You're a long ways from him. And quite simply, that's a very pagan concept, dualistic concept of us and God. It's actually not taught in the Bible. And in fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find anything in the New Testament that speaks to that. And really, in the Old Testament, it's, it's, it's sort of based on a scripture out of uh, Isaiah. 
that goes like this. Isaiah 59 and verse 2. I'll write that down for you. Isaiah 59 and 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. then becomes this how do we get from here over to there can you all see that it's kind of a lime green how do we get from here over to there well the way the story kind of goes in the drawing in Sunday school that I learned was we have the cross and we have Jesus Christ who came and he provided a means for us to get from there to here. Question. If this dualistic presentation of separation between you and God is actually true, What was Jesus doing going to the home of Zacchaeus? He was God, by the way. And we hear the people murmuring and muttering, oh, this is despicable, this is disgusting. This man claims to have a relationship with God, to be a holy prophet, to represent God, and he's going to the house The scripture says of a chief tax collector. Now, there were a lot of tax collectors in the day, but this was a publican, and he was a chief publican. Publicans were tax collectors. Chief publicans were over other tax collectors for an entire region. And the scripture also says that Zacchaeus was very rich. In other words, he got that way by cheating the people he was collecting taxes from. And oh, by the way, he was Jewish. So he, this guy, Zacchaeus, was really, really hated. He was disgusting in the eyes of the Jews. He was ta- collecting taxes. He was getting rich on it. He was cheating his own people. And he was really representing the Roman government more than he was the Jewish people. And so the Jews hated this individual. And people like him would have never, ever been visited. Never would some, a, a religious leader of that time, never would a, would a temple priest have come and visited, <laughs> gone into the home of Zacchaeus. But, and here's what's interesting, dear ones. We, we see not Zacchaeus coming to the home of God Help me, help me. We see God going over to the home of Zacchaeus. I must be in your home today. (laughs) And I'm thinking, well, God, you can't do that. Zacchaeus' sins have separated you from him. I got to thinking, here we go again, another dream of God. 
like the previous two lessons where we looked at how God dreams and how instead of following our own dreams, we need to be more about God's. When we say Jesus, grab that side, walk that way. Isn't that cool? That's like awesome. I've never had one of these before. These kind of things excite me. Okay. When we say Jesus, we think God came down to man and he... provided a program, all right, a way to become a Christian, all right, so that if man does the right things, man can ultimately get back to God. And we've got this all separated out in nice, neat little containers. There's man, there's, you know, God, there's Jesus. But when we say Jesus, we're not only saying God in the Trinity, we're saying all of humanity. I need you to think about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14 and 15. Now, since we are not projecting the scripture, I think it's so important that you see it. So grab your Bibles, grab your mobile device, pull up your Bible. So important that you see this this morning as we think about this dream that God had for Zacchaeus. Second Corinthians chapter 5, look with me, verse 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this that one has died for all who's that speaking of who died for all you sure no trick question here Jesus Christ died for okay now that's an important distinction he didn't just die for man he died for all man. Okay, let's keep reading. Uh, and Oh, by the way, are you included in all? Yes. Is there anybody here this morning that's not included in all? No. But now I have another question. Does this include your employer? Yes. That mean old... <laughs> I'd like to... Does it include him? Does it include a murderer? I mean, are you willing to go there this morning? Does it include ISIS? How about just, I mean, pick a despicable lifestyle. For the Jews back then, it was the publican, okay? And we, we've laid that groundwork. How about today? What, what, what's a despicable lifestyle? A cheat, a murderer, a homosexual, a... Does it include them? Uh, I just, 
So Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Died how? Remember I said, when you say Jesus, you're not just saying God. You're not just saying the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. What are you saying? When you say Jesus, you're saying humanity. Isn't that who was on the cross? I'm not saying in place of Jesus. I'm saying, doesn't the Bible, the gospel teach us that when Jesus died, he took my sin, he took your sin, he took your brokenness, he took, right? Let's keep reading, verse 15. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and then was raised. Now, can we make a conclusion? If, and if you read this from the NIV or the NLT, New Living Translation, or the Mirror Bible, or uh, you know, the Living Bible, some of those others, they'll bring out a nuance of what Paul was saying here. If he died for all, then in him all are raised. If he died for all, if we are co-included in his death, we must of necessity be co-included in his resurrection. Is that uncomfortable? If we are co-included in his death, we are co-included in his resurrection. Paul said we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. How do we get there? Because we were co-included in Israel. But how many does it include? Does it only include people that go to church? If he died for all, and you already told me that includes everyone, then when he rose again, in the logic of God... Listen to me carefully. In God's logic, every individual died and every individual is raised in Christ. Jesus didn't just die for 30%. Jesus didn't die for 60%. Jesus didn't even die for 99%. God and Jesus were successful. He died for 90 or 100% every human being. When you say Jesus, you're actually saying humanity. Jesus took our sin, wiped it out on the cross. So in other words, it isn't only for those who follow a religious prescription. Or in other words, I could claim I am the one who brought my salvation about. Because of what I've done, I am reconciled to God. You see, when, when God reconciled you, he didn't ask your opinion. When God reconciled you, he didn't ask your permission. 
When God reconciled you, we have a picture of this, a beautiful picture of this in the Old Testament where God cut a covenant with Abraham. And he had Abraham get the animals all ready, and he, 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 Abraham cut them in two and spread them apart and made a pathway to walk through. And he, he was excited. He got ready to cut the covenant with God. Uh, uh, and, and then God put Abraham to sleep. And, and a flaming torch representing God came down and walked through those pieces. And the scripture says that God made a promise and a covenant with himself because he could swear by nobody greater. Listen, dear ones, God's keeping this promise on your behalf and in the logic and mind and heart of God. You were you died with Christ and you rose with Christ. He's making that promise based on him, not on the things you do in your righteousness or in your attempts to be good. I don't know about you, but that gives me so much life to know that it doesn't depend on me. It is a gift, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, look at verse 17, please. Please follow. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read verse 14 and 15 again, and then we're going to read verse 17, because this is Zacchaeus. We, we have this beautiful dream of God for Zacchaeus here, and we're going to tie this back in then to the story. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. One of the most famous verses in all of the Bible. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. All things have become new. You learned that in Bible, Bible in Sunday school, didn't you? Now, you know how I've always read that? How I've always preached it? And how I've always told the sinner that they needed to respond to that is, now, if you're in Christ, then you're a new creation. And God will take everything that's old in your life and he'll cause it to pass away and he'll make you new. Question. Why do you see the if there as a condition? What if it's a conclusion rather than a condition? What if the if in verse 17 relates back to verse 14 and 15? Because, by the way, there's a word before if. What is it? And whenever you see a therefore, find out why it's therefore. Okay. So because of the context of verse 14 and 15, where Christ died for all and all are in Christ, all have 
their life in Christ, all have been raised with Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. It's not a condition, it's a conclusion. It's the conclusion of the revelation of the gospel. Mankind is in Christ by God's doing and not by your own. Oh my goodness, this is the gospel. Mankind is in Christ. They're in God as a result of what Jesus did when he came. And and he didn't ask our permission to do it. God sent his son because he so loved the world. Okay, because I know, I know how this works. I, I know when we're confronted, I know when, when teaching, religious teaching and a religious way of looking at scripture uh, for the first time is, is confronted, we want, we want proof, we want what, what saith the Lord? Oh, oh my goodness. I mean, is there, are there any other texts on this? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says this, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And we've since found out that the word foundation there is not foundation, but the fall the fall of Adam. You see, this uncommon intimacy with the Father simply refers to the fact that Jesus didn't come to give us a method to God. Jesus came because the Trinity decided without our input that they were going to reconcile all that had been lost to themselves and bring us into right relationship with God. So in the logic and heart of God, all mankind is reconciled to him. Zacchaeus, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your house today. And the crowd watched as Jesus went to the house of a notorious sinner And they said, this fellow has begun to enter and bond. Enter and bond with sinners. Question, this was before the death, burial, and resurrection. How could Jesus enter and bond with sinners prior to the cross. In the same way that all of you are in the logic of God, already in Christ before you accepted him. Now this is not a strange doctrine. Consider the Pauline epistle to Romans, the Pauline gospel as many call it. You learned this one in Sunday school, I'm sure, Rick. While we were still in our sin, look it up, 
Find it. Somebody find that so we can quote it. While we were yet in our sin. Romans chapter 5. Jesus didn't come to give us a method to, get, method to get back to God. So when did this reconciliation with the Father happen? Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 8. I'm reading from the New International Version. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Wait a minute. That doesn't say those who go to church. It doesn't say those who pray the prayer. It says, he died for the ungodly. Does that include you? How about your neighbor? How about your boss? How about the homosexual? How about the murderer? Anybody that's part of ISIS? All right. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die but God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners Christ died for us now I've been challenged of course numerous times over the last couple of years in our presentation of this gospel and I've had any number of people ask questions and the concern is well are you saying that this eliminates all responsibility for the individual to receive to believe not at all if you don't personally receive if you don't personally believe then it's not activated it transforms us when we believe it. Paul's gospel said this. If I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, and I say with my mouth, Jesus, you are Lord, I am saved. No prayer, no repentance, no moral list to work through, no religious system. Jesus didn't come to make you a Christian. I don't know what it is. Sometimes I just like to throw something like that out. I don't know if I just like putting a burr in your saddle or what I know I do like to do. I like to challenge your religious thinking. I want you to think critically about things that you have always accepted as true and do your own study and be sure that what you believe is scripturally correct. Not only scripturally correct, by translations that you have today, which are have their share of mistranslations in them, misinterpretations in them. But if you're serious, you'll look into original languages. My believing this doesn't create union with God, though. My believing that he did it doesn't create that union. That union is created in the logic and heart and mind of God. What my believing does and we used this illustration last week. Here's what my believing does. See, nothing's different. Nothing's different in the heart, in the mind, in the logic of God when I as a sinner am standing here 
where I cannot see God and I cannot fellowship with you and I hate the church and I hate Christians and I hate God and I, all right? But now my believing it and my accepting it doesn't change the fact that Jesus 2,000 years ago died. It doesn't change the fact that in the heart and logic of God, all died, I died with Christ and was raised again. But when I say, Lord, thank you. I believe God raised you from the dead. And Jesus, you are my Lord. That changes things. That brings me out into the light of the glorious gospel. But it doesn't change what God has already done. All right, let's go one more place and we'll, we'll wrap this up. Hebrews chapter eight. Oh, Zacchaeus. You know what I find interesting here as we think about this is that Jesus didn't witness to Zacchaeus he didn't go through the four spiritual laws. He didn't tell him about the Roman road. He didn't confront any of his uh, sins. Jesus also didn't tell him to change his behavior. Jesus didn't do any of those things. He just went into his house and loved him when everybody else hated him. And who was it that stood up before his Lord and said, Lord, it's in our text, Lord, I'll give 50% of everything I have to the poor. And anybody I'm, I've cheated, I'm going to give four times as much back. Lord, 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 that's all he had to do. And in the mind and the logic of God, it was already done. Why? You say, this is, how can this be? Jesus hadn't even died. I mean, you must be misinterpreting. No, 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 you're wrong. Jesus had, as a lamb, been crucified before the foundation of the world. Get out of your religion. No, he hadn't hung on the cross yet. But in the mind and logic of God, he had died. He had paid the price already. And that's why he could come to the home as a dream of God to redeem Zacchaeus, a type of you and me and all mankind, back to himself. And he didn't witness to him. He didn't go through any tracts. He didn't quote the Roman road. He didn't confront his sin, his cheating. And he, the man was rich, and he didn't tell him to change his behavior. 
He just brought the presence of God to bear. And Zacchaeus stood up and said, I will change. Lord, I'll I'll respond to this glorious message, the gospel. Hebrews chapter six or eight. Oh my goodness. I don't even know if I should read this. It's like, oh my gosh, Lord, your word. It, it sometimes is like too much. It, it like, God, I, I, I don't want, I don't, I don't want people to go home, like saying, oh my God, all these years, I, I didn't even know this was in the Bible. Can I believe the Bible anymore? Can I believe my Sunday school teacher? Can I believe all that teaching, all my tapes? What am I going to do with all my CDs? Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6 through 13. But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates for us a better covenant with God based on better promises. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. But when God found fault with the people, he said, I'll tell you what, there's a day coming when I will make a new covenant a la Abraham walking through the slain animals on his own, Abraham asleep. I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. They did, not maintain, they did not remain faithful to my covenant, so I turned my back on them, says the Lord. Verse 10, but this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord. You need to stop doing those things. You need to come to church. You need to get saved. No, you should know the Lord. For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, and I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. When God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date, and it will soon disappear. That's why you must never study the Old Testament through the lens of Old Testament. You must always study Old Testament through the lens of the gospel and the Pauline revelation of grace. Some say, well, what about the gospels where Jesus said some very difficult things? In fact, you know, that we wouldn't be, if we don't forgive, we won't be forgiven. Yeah, that's why the gospel doesn't start until Acts Chapter 1, verse 1. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. I am the I, you are the potter, 
I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will while I am waiting. Yielded and still. Wow. Oh my goodness. God came. I didn't plan that. That was like perfect, God. There was such a sila as you had to stop and think, oh my goodness. The gospel. This work of redemption, this reconciliation, this incarnation, this me being included in Christ. The message doesn't begin until Acts 1, verse 1. But in the logic, in the heart and mind of God, it began before the fall of Adam. Mm-hmm.